is Citations Needed with Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson. Welcome to this Citations Needed Begathon, the first of its kind fundraiser with all the fantastic guests and fun prizes. Uh, I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for our Begathon. Uh, of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at Citations Pod. Facebook citations needed and become if you're not already and we hope that you decide to become a supporter of the show through patreon.com slash citations needed podcast all your support through patreon is so incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener funded uh yes uh and your support there is is very much appreciated um we have over 120 uh different mini episode news briefs for those who do subscribe uh, uh, we have uh, detailed show notes, um, newsletters, etc. All, all kinds of little goodies for those who support us there. So if you haven't, thus the point of the Begathon, it's in the name. We sort of <laughs> led with it. Uh, if you can, please sign up for our Patreon. We're going to do more on that later. Tonight on Citations Needed, we're talking about two massively popular cultural phenomena and two fundamentally allegorical storytelling mediums. One gladiatorial, one galactic. From the universe of Star Trek to the world of professional wrestling, we're going to explore the human condition from the final frontier to the squared circle, from deep space battles to fatal four-ways crash landings to airplane spins, from phasers set to stun to stone-cold stunners, the Borg to Ludwig Borga. While in the world of Star Trek, encounters with alien races are often foils for uh, examining our own society's views on race, gender, and class. In wrestling, the same thing occurs through exaggerated stereotypes and over-the-top characters, personalities, and gimmicks. But only in one of these do the performers get hit with a Pearl River plunge or the people's elbow, rather than, Adam, a photon torpedo or a Klingon dock tag. Wrestling reflects our society's most base instincts of conflict, identity, loyalty, and betrayal. It's a never-ending, ever-evolving televised and traveling morality play with Shakespearean plots and vaudevillian spectacle, while Star Trek, from its series and spin-offs, movies, and magazines, comments on our present biases from an enlightened future of intergalactic unity. So tonight, Adam, it's the United Federation of Planets versus the World Wrestling Federation, the Wrath of Khan and the Ministry of Darkness, TNG and the RKO, DS9 and the DDT. Welcome, everyone, to this Citations Needed live show, Begathon, where we're talking about science fiction and athletic fiction and the ways they both often are more real than our own reality. And tonight we are so excited to have with us two amazing guests who will be joining the program. Shortly we'll talk to Dr. Robert Green II, history professor at Claflin University. He's going to join to talk about Star Trek. And a bit later on in the show, we'll be joined by Brandy Collins-Dexter, associate director of research at the Technology and Social Change Project housed at the Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy. Brandy is also the author of the brand new book, Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. And she will come with all the hot wrestling takes that everyone needs to hear. Uh, but first, a quick note on why we're uh, doing this begathon. Um, Citations Needed takes a uh, team and a ton of work. Um, I, we'd like to think not many shows do the level of research and, and analysis and, and output we do, um, although there are some with much larger budgets. Uh, and to date, for, uh, to date for, for about five and a half years, we've put out 170 episode, uh, episodes, 126 news briefs. Um, obviously, we're very grateful 
uh, for this job. It is a it is a it is a dream job that gets us. This sort of we're totally independent. We get to say what we want to say. We get to research topics we love to research. Um, we have we've had over about seventeen and a half million downloads. Uh, each episode gets between ninety to one hundred and thirty thousand downloads per episode. Uh, but roughly f- uh, four thousand people or so support the show, and so. We're trying to get that number up a little bit. Uh, we don't think that that's too greedy. Obviously, we've gotten older. We have children. Uh, we have type one diabetes. Um, other things that cost uh, that does cost us money to live. Um, we are not couch dwelling slackers. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And so we are trying to uh, boost be the Patreon a li- be both boost the Patreon good. a little bit. And so we're we are doing this begathon again. We we have never done anything like this before. So we're we're now we're now humiliating and prostrating ourselves in front of you, asking for for you. But with help the best us. possible topics and amazing. Guests. With the best possible possible, yeah. Because it's funny because we actually the reason why we did this is because for years like, we always talked about doing a Star Trek episode. And Nima's like, I don't know anything about Star Trek. And he and I was like, he's like, I want to do a wrestling show. And I said, I don't know anything about wrestling. Uh, and so we eventually said, well, we're doing a live show. Why don't we combine the two topics we don't know? Uh, I'll learn about wrestling. You learn about Star Trek. Yeah. And um, it'll be fun because it's two things that both, of, both he and I uh, enjoy sort of separately from the show. Um, we'll be putting a little bit of a critical eye on it, although, it, you know, we're not going to be doing... Um, we're, we're not going to be doing, uh, you know, parking lot ambush interviews with... Um, with Gene Roddenberry's son, uh, it is, but but we'll, we'll we're going to try to uh, do a little bit of both praise and criticism today. So I'm very excited to do this. I'm very excited for y'all to join us. Um, I, I I I we've wanted to do more live YouTube stuff, so I'm I'm happy we're doing that as well for the first time. Yeah. Uh, so we're grateful for your patience. Uh, we're there. Yeah, and so we are also not without. Um incentives tonight for you all uh so before we get to our first guest uh we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh what we're giving away uh tonight to uh the folks joining us live right now and also to our supporters who might not be able to join us live right now um so some stuff uh will be uh for the lucky folks who are with us other things will be for the folks who sign up to support the show uh tonight or over the next week um and we will also have some lovely things to give to our uh, patron supporters who uh, have have been w- been with us for a long time, who already support the show. So no one is left out. You don't just get the deal because you're a brand new supporter. You don't just get the deal because you're with us tonight. You don't just get the deal uh, because you've been with us for a long time. Everyone gets something. Um, so, you know, and don't worry, it's basically all the same stuff anyway. And it's all great. So uh, we have a number of things to give away, um, including official citations needed merch like mugs, totes, and t-shirts. We also, and this is very exciting uh, tonight, we have a bunch of copies of uh, our guest Brandy Collins-Dexter's brand new book, Black Skinhead, which we will also be giving away. So the way this is going to happen is during our live broadcast for the next couple hours, uh, we're going to give away a prize every like half hour or so to folks who are uh, live with us right now. That is you all watching right now. So this first uh, next half hour between right now, uh, it is 9 p.m. on the East Coast. So uh, in the next half hour or so uh, before 930 East Coast time or uh, whatever that happens to be 30 minutes from now where you happen to be yourself, everyone live streaming this right now who can hear me right now who drops a comment comment in the YouTube chat will be in the running for a citations needed mug. This is whether you're a Patreon supporter or not. We hope that you become one, but uh, 
you don't have to be uh, to get this prize. Um, so you're with us. You're with us live right now, and we love you for that. One lucky winner will be randomly selected for the prize of all the people who put stuff in the chat, and we'll announce the winner live on air later tonight. Uh, sorry, we don't have mugs for all of you. Uh, just one of you will get it. Uh, but don't worry, we're going to be doing this kind of thing throughout the night. Uh, and if you're dying for a mug and you want to guarantee that you get your hands on an amazing citations needed mug, head over to our merch store at bonfire.com. Uh, you can see it on the screen there. Just search for uh, citations needed or go to the link. Um, uh, uh, bonfire.com slash store slash citations needed um, and grab whatever you want right now. Uh, yes. In the meantime, if you're already, uh, if you're not already a Patreon, but you want to be, you can, you can go to patreon.com slash citations needed podcast. Later this week, uh, we'll give away uh, more stuff to our patrons, subscribers, uh, new and old. Uh, for, uh, for our different tiers, Cynic, Skeptic, and Critic, uh, we will give a copy of Brandy's book. And because we are celebrating our sixth season, we are giving away six mugs to Cynics, six tote bags to Skeptics, and six t-shirts to Critics. Um, and if you're really lucky, you'll get a fancy sweatshirt we have for a critic level, so, uh, for, for those critic level, critic level supporters who sign up. So we are throwing merch at you. <laughs> Um, to to get you to sign up for our Patreon um, because we're basically just doing what NPR does, but I feel like they're a little more dignified yeah. when they do it. But I don't care. Um, so we're 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 really they, excited. They don't they, they don't talk about wrestling as much, so this is better. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so we're gonna um we're we're gonna announce all the all the um prize winners uh, next Wednesday, October twenty sixth. I think we are good. Uh, let's get to Star Trek. Uh, you can tell me all about it. I will say this. I will say this for my ninth birthday. For my ninth yeah. birthday, Adam, um, yeah. my birthday party was at a movie theater and we saw Star Trek V. So I'm wow. not without. You really, you really, you my, really dated yourself. It's not without my, uh, you know. That's the uh, that's the worst uh, one. Love that's of Star Trek. It's the it was the one that came out. I'm so, I would I would have I would have rather enough. have been older and seen the one with the whales. But you know, yeah, anyway, we are now going to be joined by by our first guest, uh, yes. the ever patient. Oh my God, Dr. Robert Green the second, assistant professor of history at Claflin University, publications chair of the Society of U.S. Intellectual Historians, senior editor of Black Perspectives, uh, America uh, African American Intellectual History Society, and co-editor of the publication Invisible No More, The African-American Experience at the University of South Carolina, which was published last year by USC Press. Uh, Robert has written extensively about Star Trek for publications like The Atlantic and also the incredibly official Star Trek.com. Dr. Robert Green II, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today on Citations Needed. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to say, first off, that the... Um the actual YouTube stream with the comment section should be preserved for posterity because the comment section is already the greatest one I've ever seen in my entire life. So, oh well, thank you. Uh, Appreciate it. I'm you, really you, glad usually there's usually there's a cesspool of of, of trolling and <laughs> and, uh, and horrific ideology. So I'm grateful for that. Um, first off, thank you so much for coming. Um, I want to note it for the record for those watching: we did not ask him to wear a Star Trek shirt. That was voluntary. Um, I would never. Ask a guest to do that, but we're very grateful for that for the theme. So we, I've been wanting to have you on to talk about Star Trek for years. Uh, actually, probably since I first read the the Atlantic piece you wrote five years ago. So I'm excited to get into that. Um, now, for a little bit of context, um, this 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 particular episode we're going to be starting off with because his episode is specifically about the uh, 1995 two parter Past Tense, um, which depicts a a depiction of 2024 
from the perspective of a 1995 writer, but from the perspective of the of the Star Trek is you know 200 years in the future, and they're looking back somewhat, um, I don't want to say condescendingly, but somewhat judgmental about how horrific it is. And the general mm-hmm. setup is that San Francisco is divided into a town of elites and a town of of basically what are homeless encampments or homeless internment camps, uh, and where the poor and the destitute and the sort of indigent, whatever you want to call them. Are, are are imprisoned by these highly securitized um, encampments, basically. Uh, now, you wrote about this in 2017. I think it's fair to say since you wrote that piece, um, that particular episode has gotten more and more prescient. In fact, we're you know we're only mm. about a, 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 a you know a, what a year and a half away from from the year yeah, in question. Yeah, it takes place in 2024, right? I, I, and it was uh... it, yeah, and and just this past uh, month. Miami actually the city count the city commission voted to create a to put all their homeless population on an island off off the coast of Miami it was technically voluntary but basically they were gonna have police harass them until they went there two hours away from any bus or um, uh, two hours away from any bus stop or or, or any public transportation so it, it's very very much prescient uh, for 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 our moment so I want to sort of talk about uh, that episode the move the move was since halted by the way because of outrage from both human rights activists and actually some rich people who who live on the island who didn't want the homeless people there so it was good for all the wrong reasons um but the general philosophy of we need to get the homeless people the poor out of sight and out of mind has made this episode i think more urgent um mm-hmm. for for our time and, and one of which i'm excited to get down and talk about so i want to sort of begin by talking about the specific political context the show was produced and you know it was only a couple years after the the la riots uh, that the show went into production and this very, very thinly veiled reference to the LA riots throughout the episode. Um, if, so I want to sort of talk about the, the the political context the show aired and how it kind of portended a, a more dark neoliberal vision of how we dealt with poverty and homelessness. Right. And I think this is a really important point to jump off this evening with talking about the two-parter past tense. Um, again, it, it comes out uh, in 1995. It's produced in late 94. And what you're seeing in the the public consciousness in terms of debates about the homeless is that they are often being seen as a, a major political problem in the 1980s and 90s, really going back to the 1970s, this idea of we have to fix our inner cities by getting the homeless out however we can and putting them basically out of sight and out of mind. Um, now, I think there is an interesting parallel between Star Trek as a franchise and this debate over what to do with the homeless. If you go back to the 1960s and the original series, uh, and other scholars have pointed this out, the original series is very much the the biggest, perhaps the biggest cultural legacy of the great society era liberalism in the mid to late 60s. Um, and this idea that anything can be done as long as we put our minds to it and our technology to it and so forth. Whereas I think Deep Space Nine, and especially past tense, is really being written more in mind of a, a cynicism about what the government can and would do in such a situation. Um, in addition to that, I, I'm glad you mentioned neoliberalism because this two-parter is written and produced during the first term of Bill Clinton. And you're already seeing by this point the Democratic Party also retreating from what we might think of as even milquetoast liberal ideas about how to deal with poverty and homelessness. This is about a year before the Welfare Reform Act was also passed. Uh, so you're already seeing in the air across the country in both major parties this idea of 
the best way for us to deal with homelessness is to put the homeless out of sight and out of mind. And certainly when I was writing this article and I was doing some research about it, you could see that producers and writers of Deep Space Nine felt very strongly that this was an issue worth writing about and talking about. And I would I would add that I think it's interesting that they decided to use time travel as opposed to an allegory on an alien planet. You know, most of the time in Star Trek and other American science fiction properties, it's this problem would be on some distant planet and the aliens would be thinly built representations of the LAPD or what have you. But instead, they're saying, we're going to set this in the near future in 2024, which in 1995 seemed like a long time ago, but it's almost here now. And the, the problem is that these issues that the episode points out are issues that are still with us even today. So I think in that sense, past tense is a really important moment in Trek in terms of dealing with the world as it is and as many feared it would mm. be. Yeah, it's as you know, in your piece, it's a little bit more uh, urgent and, and a little bit more, it's not as allegorical. Um, but I think that, again, I think that adds to the, to the sort of, um, effect it has because people, you know, every five minutes on Twitter, I feel like there's a tweet that goes viral. People talk about that episode because it's like, oh, that's literally, um, you know, especially San Francisco, which has, which is kind of ground zero. It's, you know, I, 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 I've written several, you know, columns for the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle about home. And I talk about homelessness and housing and you just get this level of visceral, like anger. You just don't get when you talk Mm -hmm. about other topics, there's a sense there, there's a sense of vindictiveness and a, like there's a general perception as you talk about that like San Francisco as it exists today is like the Federation in the 23rd century. It's like everyone is free housing and free drugs and there's no there's no one prosecutes crime. It's a total fantasy, but it's like what people have convinced themselves of. Um, and I want to talk about why 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 do you think they oh. keep time traveling to San Francisco and Star Trek? Right? They went well, in Star that, Trek. That's the home. That's the home Francisco. base. That's the home no, base no, no, of no. the Federation. Oh, that's why. That's okay. Right. See, it's, see, I'm learning. I'm, I'm learning. Um, <laughs> no, it's not, it's, that, that's the point. <laughs> no, no, of this no, no. Well, no, but I, actually, Robert, if, if I, I just, I just have a, a, a question here. Um, sure. Or actually, for for both of you, um, you know, what what kind of change do you see in the politics of the of the show between, say, the original series, um, and then you know, and then shows like either Next Generation or Deep Space Nine, um, where you know, obviously the time and place that they that they take place in is going to inform, you know, the way that their politics kind of manifest. And I think that, you know, Robert, you've written uh, you've written wonderful stuff about about how, um, you know, there's kind of a like a white liberal gaze in the in the in the scripting and the, and the direction at a certain point but that shifts over time can you talk about maybe the kind of political evolution over the course of i mean there's so many star trek uh products you know uh but like how that kind of moved and, and evolved with the time right and i think this is this is a really good point to keep in mind is that the original series star trek of the 1960s was very much a product of not just the great society but also the cold war and so you have a, a Cold War liberal mentality uh, in some of the episodes, especially when it comes to episodes that deal with the Federation and its foreign policy with the Klingons and the Romulans and such. Uh, there have been debates amongst fans for almost a generation now about how, even though we look on the show fondly as this, this artifact of the liberal 60s, there are episodes, for example, that kind of justify the Vietnam War, for example. Um, yeah. Whereas on the other hand, there are episodes that make an allegorical um, outreach towards how do we deal with racism uh, in the present day, uh, albeit a bit ham-fisted. 
Uh, I think the big difference with, between that and say the next generation DS9 period is that what you see in the next generation in particular is a, a 24th century society in the Federation that is seen as being almost perfect, almost like utopia. Whereas in the original series, there's this idea that humanity is working towards that. Uh, there's a great line from Captain James T. Kirk in the episode called Arena, where he's about to kill a Gorn, and then he does it, and he says, I will not kill today. Implying that he may kill tomorrow, perhaps he would have killed yesterday, but he, like every human being, is flawed and imperfect. Uh, whereas in the next generation, at least in the early seasons, there's this sense that Captain Jean-Luc Picard and the Enterprise D crew, they represent the pinnacle of human achievement and and the idealism of humanity. Now, Deep Space Nine is in many ways a response to that because the writers and producers for DS9 were trying to bring conflict back into Star Trek. Uh, they were trying to be intentional about making it less a utopia and more about the hardship of living on the frontier. Uh, and so I think even if you look at just those three shows, you see different aspects of how they're handling great society, late 20th century liberalism, and also how they're thinking about things like U.S. foreign policy, uh, U.S. domestic policy, and even identity and the idea of the frontier itself. Uh, in, in other words, I think what you're seeing is that the, the idea of Star Trek was maturing over time um, for, for a number of reasons, most notably just because they wanted to make a different kind of television show each time right. they made a new Star Trek. Story. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think, I think, I mean, I've, I've always, I've said this on Twitter a bunch and I get some flack for it, but I mean, it's, you rewatch like TNG. It's, it is a love letter to liberal imperialism in many ways. And this kind of maybe even French version of imperialism where it's like ostensibly socialisty or has like elements of that, but they're always sort of meddling in other people's affairs. They're always more, they're always morally superior. They constantly talk about how other species will one day evolve to be as great as they are. I mean, there's a chauvinism at its heart. And then of course DS9 comes along and the reason why it's so popular is that it problematizes all that. It shows that they're all just a bunch of hypocrites. It keeps a little bit of it, but it's, you know, they're, they're constantly, they're they're constantly ripping apart the, the 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 tapestry not to mix references here of TNG and that's what people love about it in many ways it neither work without the other right it doesn't you can't really have T, right. you know so uh, on that note the sort of gritty the kind of gritty more more overt politics of Deep Space Nine maybe in some ways kind of liberated the writers because they wouldn't have to use all these kind of ham-fisted metaphors or to use other societies to reflect our own but to say actually let's just reflect our own so I want to talk about the kind of um, the, the, the episode is an interesting sort of snapshot. So it came out on January 1st, 1995, which was, um, which was the, the, the day the World Trade Organization uh, first went live. Um, and a year to the day after NAFTA went live on January 1st, 1994. And so, and there's several mentions in the episode of, of um, automation and the idea of machines replacing humans and then the surplus population being rendered unseen. Uh, in, a, in an economy that was that was going to, and again, so this was not very popular at the time. <laughs> uh, this is about as far left as you're going to get in a kind of corporate Westinghouse product, right? I mean, this this is pretty much the extent you're going to get any kind of meaningful criticism, and it's 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 actually kind of maybe a little bit sad that the most scathing criticism of uh, sort of neoliberal dystopia comes from a television show rather than you know our own our sort of bigger uh, media products, is because NAFTA and WTO were seen as kind of universally good. 
uh, they were ascendant. You know, New York Times editorial page, your far left was Paul Krugman and he loved them. And then, of course, you had a whole, a whole episode of the West Wing dedicated to talking about how great, great the World Trade Organization is. And of course, we now know that the World Trade Organization is a huge creator of poverty in many key ways, slightly reformed of late. But for you know, 20 years, it, it, it indebted many countries, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to sort of talk about that snapshot of neoliberal kind of mid 90s. Um, oh, everyone's going to we're going to automate. Because the, the myth was we're gonna we're all gonna get ship all these jobs overseas or or, or to Mexico or or to the you know global south. But don't worry, you're gonna yours gonna be a just transition and you're gonna learn how to like I don't know be like code or something or whatever the sort of version of that was back in the '90s. And this painted a picture of like oh no that never happens. We just have a ton of poor people. So talk about the anxieties of globalization in the '90s and how they and how they how they informed this episode specifically. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really important point for us to, to keep in mind. I mean. I think the great irony here is that things like the WTO and NAFTA were painted not only as uh, tools of neoliberalism and growing the U.S. economy and advancing the U.S. economy into the 21st century. But if you listen to some of the rhetoric of that era in the mid-90s, it was part of the the larger end of history narrative, thinking of the the growth of liberal democracy across the world, which if you you want, you could make an argument that some folks were thinking, well, this is how we get the Federation. You know, we have to right. we have to break down these barriers for trade, the commerce to lead to a, a prosperous and and uh, freedom loving humanity. Uh, and of course, in the real world of 2022, we have seen that that has not exactly worked out the way we thought it would or at least some thought it would. Um, I do think to your point about globalization and the, the anxieties around it, I think one of the great ironies here is that you have activists for a generation before especially in the civil rights and black power movements, warning about this. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. in the 60s is writing about the, the his concern over surplus population, automation, during the Great Society, uh, as he and others are trying to push forward a freedom budget. You fast forward 30 years later, as past tense is coming out, it seems that that debate was largely lost. Uh, that, yeah. in fact, most people had embraced this neoliberal creed. And I think in the episode itself, the ideas you're seeing are are that yes, this this neoliberal idea has won out. But if you watch two parter carefully, they make reference to other parts of the world, and they're saying, for example, in France there is a uh, I think a Trotskyist revolution, which I think some Trek fans have kind of joked about in recent years because they're kind of down to that as well. Um, but they they also make the the, the point that. Even in 2024, and in this fictionalized version, even after like roughly 30 years of, of neoliberal politics and such and the WTO existing, there is a sense that not everyone is on board, that so many Americans are being left behind. As you, as you point out, that was a radical statement to make in 1995 because the consensus in Washington and throughout the ruling class was this is the best thing for America. This is the best thing for the global north. And Deep Space Nine was saying, well, wait a minute, maybe it's not. Uh, and like you said, it is unfortunate. This is one of the few places where you see this critique, but it is a, a one that's worth thinking about carefully. Um, I want to play a quick clip here. We'll, we'll just do one clip um, where they kind of debate the, 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 where one character is a little more cynical, Cisco's a little more cynical, and Bashir is a little bit more um, credulous that we would... Um, Again, to be clear, this is from the episode past tense. This is from the episode past tense we've been talking about. Sorry, there was a little bit of homework involved, so we're gonna we're gonna show this for those who aren't familiar. Just how bad are these riots going to be, Commander? 
Bad. The sanctuary residents will take over the district. Some of the guards will be taken hostage. The government will send in troops to restore order. Hundreds of sanctuary residents will be killed. Hundreds? And there's nothing we can do to prevent it. Starfleet temporal displacement policy may sound good in the classroom, but to know that hundreds of people are going to die and to not be able to do a thing to save them. I sympathize, Doctor. But if it will make you feel any better, the riots will be one of the watershed events of the 21st century. Gabriel Bell will see to that. Bell? The man they named the riots after. He is one of the sanctuary residents who will be guarding the hostages. The government troops will storm this place based on rumors that the hostages have been killed. It turns out the hostages were never harmed because of Gabriel Bell. In the end, Bell sacrifices his own life to save them. He'll become a national hero. Outrage over his death and the death of the other residents will change public opinion about the sanctuaries. They'll be torn down and the United States will finally begin correcting the social problems it had struggled with for over a hundred years. And all of this is gonna happen in the next few days. Which means, if we warn these people about what's coming, if we try to help them in any way, we risk altering a pivotal moment in history, and we can't let that happen. All right, so uh, we have the the ability to show that clip uh, on our on our live stream. This is super exciting. Some usually we just get to do audio, so uh, it's great. Now, um, this is like a you know key 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 moment in the in this two part series, right? Kind of tease up the idea of of uh, you know how they can't alter history. I mean, it's the time travel dilemma, right? Um, what is the butterfly effect going to be? Will they even exist as the as the Federation if they change the riots, which are, which are this watershed event? Now, Robert, you've written uh, this quote. Bell, uh, Gabriel Bell, who they, who they reference, uh, quote, Bell's race gives the two-parter an eerie realism. His almost sacrificial death recalls pivotal moments in U.S. history when black Americans died violently and spurred others to ensure the nation lived up to its lofty ideals. The modern Black Lives Matter movement emerged following the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the fatal 2012 shooting of Trayvon Martin and gained wider prominence after the police killings of Michael Brown and Eric Garner in 2014. The assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. sparked the passage of the Fair Housing Act of 1968, a bombing that killed four little African-American girls in Birmingham, Alabama, at the height of the civil rights movement, galvanized public opinion against Southern segregation, end quote. Now, obviously, uh, this episode and, uh, as you've also written about, the Avery Brooks-directed episode Far Beyond the Stars, uh, which is more explicitly about race, um, uh, you know, this uh, features race and class and how they create social conditions. So uh, we'd, we'd love to hear you talk about um, how making the central hero a black person, uh, the central hero of like why the Federation exists, of why humanity decided to shift shift the way it was um, to create potentially this, this kind of um, you know interplanetary utopia, why making the central hero um, Black elevates not only this episode, but also maybe the wider context of the show. And as you have written, especially in the context of the LA riots of uh, 1992, which had, you know, which were still in recent memory. So how does the issue of race and class really interact with the broader commentary and narrative of this episode, but maybe just the wider Star Trek universe or multiverse, as it were? Well, I think it's, it's kind of interesting watching that clip again. 
2022, because part of me thought as I watched a clip that Avery Brooks, is, is then commander of Benjamin Sisko, saying that a, a black man sacrificing himself redeems the U.S., I thought that might be the most unrealistic thing Star Trek's ever done. <laughs> Um, and I and I say this with with oh I, I'm serious because now that you know I wrote that piece in 2017 uh, you know just on the the, the the beginnings of Trump administration and we hadn't gone through COVID 19 we hadn't had the death of George Floyd the resurgence of Black Lives Matter and yet now I look back on that both the piece I wrote and that episode itself and it is interesting to see an episode of Star Trek that I don't think could be made today. Because what they're basically saying is, actually, riots do make social change. Right. Um, and that Black men can actually make a difference, even if they aren't respectable, quote unquote. Um, I think, though, the, the 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 race of Gabriel Bell plays a pivotal role in the episode, because I think what the writers were really going for there was they were trying to tap into the collective cultural memory of the 60s. They were trying to tap into what most of their fans would have recognized as being a touchstone of civil rights and black power protests in the 60s and 70s. Uh, in particular, the idea of, of, of rioting, the idea of a black man at the forefront. Uh, now, I think it, it makes even more of a difference that it's Avery Brooks involved, because I, I mentioned before in the piece that I wrote that uh, he had been in a production of 12 Years a Slave, for example. He had played Hawk. Uh, in the Spencer for Hire TV shit series. So he was kind of seen as one of the, the great, strong black men of television at that time. Um, and yet here he is in some ways giving a, a future American history lesson saying that the country has all these issues it has to solve before we can create a federation and fix the world, we have to fix the United States. Um, and I think that, again, having it be a, a black man doing this is really important for the kind of story they're going to tell. I think in some ways what the writers were saying or were saying was, if the country is to be redeemed, it will have to be by its oppressed populations. Um, it can't be through uh, moderation or through even liberalism. It's gonna have to take some actual revolutionary change for the country to, to be changed and for the Federation to essentially be formed in the far future. Yeah, because I, you know, you, you're right that it basically makes the argument that riots work. Or at least if they have some political content, they work. I know there's um, much debate about whether riots as such are, are, are it's kind of a value neutral thing, but they, if they have the right political content, the right message, they, they can work. And it's interesting that in Star Trek lore, the thing, or at least in this particular version of it, the thing that creates meaningful progress is, is a riot effectively of the, of the underclasses. Um, after which is, after uh, the murder, after the murder of after the, yeah, after the murder of a, of a yeah, the, the parallels I think are, are are again we after the murder of George Floyd we we all cared about racism for ten minutes and then everyone became a foaming reactionary but that's a that's a it didn't quite work out that way because um, they I think in their universe they didn't have a very sophisticated um, nonprofit industrial complex that came along and and, and demanded we ban chokeholds for the five hundredth time. But that cynicism Cis aside, Cisco said it was the beginning of something. You didn't say it was the enough, only fair, event fair enough, that then created. Um, um, <laughs> I feel like there's still still a couple hundred years that followed, right? Right. Uh, so um, I want to 
so on that note, I kind of want to pivot a little bit, if you can, to what I would view as the because it wouldn't be citations if we didn't level a criticism against the episode. And it, with again, with a, with a very <laughs> with a with a very un, with a very clear understanding that we this know is about our as, audience that this was this is a corporate maniacs. TV show station TV show in the '90s. So we're we're grading on a very very steep curve here. So we're not going to be too 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 preachy here. But one cringe thing it does is it, is it goes out of its way, which is very very '90s, to make a distinction between the people who are in the sanctuary districts who are poor and who that they're not criminals there's two separate times in the show uh where they go to uh, one character says um uh, a quote that the sanctuary cities um the, the people there quote haven't done anything wrong they're not criminals later cisco even notes that quote people with criminal records are not allowed in the sanctuary cities um which is extremely dubious if you know how criminal how, means, how, means how, testing how, how criminal how, yeah how criminalizing <laughs> poverty works otherwise we're, i guess they're in prisons i think is the assumption but um but it does make this it does do the whole deserved and undeserved underclass uh, thing which mm-hmm. again grading on a scale here it's the it's a corporate tv show it's what it's a you know it's a it's a westinghouse electric corporation show in 1995 so i'm i'm trying to be fair here uh but if you if, if you can can you sort of talk about the um, the need to sort of make them out to be the deserved poor and how how that kind of plays into this victim blaming thing we see with with discourse around um homelessness or even frankly if some of the Black Lives Matter discourse that, oh, well, what, what was the criminal record of the victim? You know, where, where did it, you know, that kind of deserved and undeserved dichotomy that activists have really, really tried to get away from. Um, I know a great deal in the past, uh, in the past 10 years or so. Can, can you comment on that in, in this episode and, and, and what it says about the time it came out? I think this actually goes back to your first question about the problem of automation and how the episode predicts that, because what the episode is essentially saying is that the people in the sanctuary districts didn't do anything deserving of being put in a sanctuary district. They were just displaced because of economic change and so forth, Uh, which, you know, begs the question. So is there a situation which sanctuary district would be feasible or would make sense? Would that be for the criminal underclass and so forth? Uh, But I think to your point, it, it does, and I think you're, you're, you're right to, to give it some grace in the sense that this is the mid 1990s, this is really the, the cutting edge of what they could do on television in terms of talking about poverty, talking about uh, crime, talking about the underclass and so forth. Um, I, I think one of the great ironies is that even though the 1990s is an era of, of globalization, an era where labor seems to be in retreat, you do see in Deep Space Nine these episodes like this one or, or others where they're talking about things like labor, uh, talking about things like homeless globalization um i would actually argue perhaps in terms of science fiction broadly speaking the best episode about labor and unionism may actually be from the other series babylon 5 uh which has a whole episode about a dock worker strike on the space station um but coming back to deep space nine i i think what you what you really see here again is how star trek throughout its now almost 60 year history has been wrestling with its own brand of liberalism. Um, another example of this is that if you look at contemporary news trek, you look at Discovery, uh, Picard, other shows like that in the, in the present day, they are asking still deeper questions about this relationship between modern liberalism and, and Star Trek's vision of a utopian future. For example, season two of Picard, and spoiler alert for those who've not yet watched it but want to, season two of Picard also is a time travel story into 2024. 
except it's in Los Angeles and not San Francisco. And they make some brief allusions to the sanctuary districts and the politics of the day. But in their version, they're actually tying in more what's going on in the here and now as well. I think in both situations, though, both TV shows, in Star Trek writ large, there's always this question about the 21st century. And as they talk about in past tense, this question, the end of the two-parter is raised of, I think Dr. Bashir says to Commander Sisko, how could they let things get so bad? And Commander Sisko says, I wish I knew. And so in, in a way, while the episode ends on that down note, it's almost, in, in one sense, it acknowledges the problems we have, but in the other sense, it's almost defeatist. It's almost saying, well, this is the best the American people could do until push came to shove. Now, is that a utopian vision of the future? Probably not. But it may be perhaps, unfortunately for the moment, a realistic one, which is why we have to think, have a, a, a broader, deeper political imagination about what's possible. And certainly we hope it doesn't mean sanctuary districts in two years. I had a, a question, Robert, though, as, as you as you bring up, uh, you know, time travel episodes and um you know, uh, far beyond the stars is also is also one. Um, I'm I'm curious as to how how you think about a show, um, uh, you know, a uh, interstellar sci-fi show um, that usually interacts with like either alien races or uh, you know problems on a on a ship uh, ship or battles or or whatever. Uh, but then repeatedly going back to this genre of time travel and why, why Star Trek relies on that. Um, and, and, and kind of how they, how they use that, um, in their, in their, in their storytelling. Uh, you know, I used to, uh, while I didn't watch Star Trek, uh, really growing up, um, except for, I guess the, the first five movies, um, the, you know, show that I really, that I, one of the shows I really loved was, was, was Quantum Leap. And as we're talking about these, you know, uh, whether it's past tense or whether it's, um, whether it's, uh, far beyond the stars, there's kind of, you know, as I, as I was reviewing them for this, I was like, oh, there's kind of like a Quantum Leap vibe going on, right? Like we're going to go back and maybe can, can we, can we make right something or can we learn from the past? Uh, Quantum Leap is, is certainly has like a boomer vision of, of, of the, you know, review, like revisiting the 20th century, of course. Um, uh, so not to equate the two, obviously, but like, where do you think this, I, this, uh, use and the utility in Star Trek of, of going into time travel, um, rather than staying kind of in the future. Like, how 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 does that sort of allegory work? I think it's important to tie this to how Star Trek itself as a franchise has always been about exploring the human condition. And you can look at this from, from one perspective of how some of the most beloved characters in Trek, uh, Spock, Data from The Next Generation, um, Odo from Deep Space Nine and, and, and so forth. Many of the most beloved characters are those who are not human. And so they are often seen as the characters who can provide a unique perspective on humanity and the human condition. I think with the time travel episodes, though, what you see is them trying to provide a perspective on the human condition in the here and now, right? Because so many, so many beloved time travel episodes either take those crews conveniently to the, the day in which the shows are being produced um, or 
they're offering some other perspective on, on the on the past. So, for example, you mentioned Far Beyond the Stars, which is set in the 1950s, but it's not. But is an episode. Yes, but it, it, it is not technically time travel. It's more no, of like yeah. a, well, a. There's a lot of debate a, around that. Yeah, because it, it involves the the aliens and the wormhole, the prophets, and how they are uh, trying to get Cisco to understand a lesson, but. So putting, it's like possibly that, a manufactured 50s yeah, world that doesn't exist. Well, see, it, this is the thing, right? It, it's it's a manufactured 50s, but I think the, the great irony of that is in most American media, a manufactured 50s is a good thing. That's Those are the good old days. But, but Cisco, in his vision, the prophets are saying, and Cisco knows this, these were not the good old days for some people. Uh, and the episode points that out. Another episode in season seven of Deep Space Nine, by the way, and I'll come back to your question because this links back to it very nicely. There's an episode in season seven called Bada Bing, Bada Bang, which is set in the hollow suite, or holodeck of Deep Space Nine. But it's about a program set in 1962 Las Vegas. And Benjamin, Ben Sisko tells his, his new wife, Cassidy Yates, that he doesn't want to go to the program because he says if it's realistic, people look like you and me will be treated poorly. And so there's this acknowledgement that the kind of time travel you're talking about, like the, the quantum leaping and, and all that and, and going to the past, I, I think Cisco makes a critique that many black science fiction fans have had for generations, which is, okay, you know, if you're, if you're James T. Kirk, you can go to the 1930s and, and the Great Depression uh, and, <laughs> and City Edge forever and be just fine. But someone like me who goes back to 1930s New York may have a slightly different experience. Yeah. So I think in, in, in a lot of ways... White people what, what can just pop seeing, around time and yeah. be, uh, be relatively fine. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think there's this question of what, uh, of how even Star Trek and, and its time travel episodes is sometimes trying to either puncture the air of nostalgia about these time periods, or in the case of, say, Star Trek Four, a.k.a. the one with the whales, they're trying to say, hey, we have these problems in the here and now, we might want to work on these while we still have a chance to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, by the way, I think it's worth noting had these episodes could be made now because it'd be called woke, but I digress. Yeah, because I, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because that episode about it being, I remember being, it was so jarring when he said that line because the the other episode is otherwise a kind of throwaway, fun Ocean's Eleven send up. It's it's a it's a right. bottle. It's like a fun episode. And then they're like doing this, you know, kind of kitschy stuff. We're gonna go to the swing about it being sixties. And then she's like, what's wrong? Why do you want to go? And he's like, because they're, you know, they, you and I would be treated poorly back in the 60s. And I remember thinking like, holy shit. Yeah, like if that aired today, that would melt down Twitter because it is a little bit of like, um, hey, why don't we just check this a little bit and understand that these kind of tropes aren't the same for everybody. And I, I would love right. to, I would be curious to read like an oral history of that line because I, I, I want to say mm -hmm. like it's not, it wasn't originally in there. Like it, at least it doesn't feel like it was in there. And someone said like, hey, maybe we should like acknowledge the fact that our two black leads would have been harassed by some, you know, Irish cop on the way in, and you know, I mean, obviously it's the holodeck, but it, it was a, it was an interesting moment. I, it was not, uh, it was a little bit out of the tone of the rest of the show. Right. Yeah. It, it is. It does kind of stand out, and I think it's also, it also stands out in in terms of being one of the rare occasions where Star Trek deals directly with race. Yes. It's not in a metaphorical, allegorical sense, but actually outright saying. This man is a black man and he knows his history because he's, he's also saying we're offering a sanitized vision of the past. This isn't realistic. 
Um, so I, I think in that regard, that and also Far Beyond the Stars, where again, I, I think Far Beyond the Stars is interesting because the villains in, in Trek, uh, Wayun Dukat, in Far Beyond the Stars, the prophets portray them as police officers. So again, right. they're saying, hey, you know, uh, allegory, symbolism, metaphor, that's for cowards. We're just going mm-hmm. <laughs> to tell this right. story outright that the, that, and give it to you the, straight. Yeah, but the villains are cops, yeah. Um, except for the all cops are bastard, except for uh, or except for Odo, I think is the is the internet well, Odo, well, uh, Odo and Worf. I think it's worth noting that both Odo and Worf, especially Odo, they have they have undergone a reappraisal on Twitter amongst Trek fans about that because some people are saying, right. "Yeah, Odo was a fascist." And I'm like, "Well, okay, but he, he only collaborated with fascists." <laughs> They, they, they do they do kind of gloss they do kind of gloss over his his his, his like Vichy France his Vichy France collaboration. They're like, oh, he had no choice, and I'm like, wait a second, and I get it. It's all about complexities. Um, uh, Nima, did you want to do a last question before we wrap it up? Or yeah, we wrap well, it up? No, I was gonna. I, I was. I, I, I wanted to. The- I wanted to make sure that. Um, that you got in all of your all of your uh, I did trekkiness. Uh, I've scratched, I've scratched I, I've, the itch. Thank you. And just a little bit. I honestly, I feel like this could be. We could go. We could go for hours. And uh, Robert cannot thank you enough for joining us. Uh, but before we let you go, um, can you uh, tell us and 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 the, and the wonderful people joining on this live stream uh, what you are up to next? What we can look out for? Maybe are you uh, pondering a next? Uh, a next generation. Uh, see what I did there. A next generation of your uh, analysis. Uh, you know, is there something you're grappling with, or that we can look forward to reading from you soon? Uh, well, you know, I, I I will say I am working with a couple of colleagues at the University of South Carolina on, a, on an academic project that kind of takes these questions and goes a bit further with them. Uh, and hopefully, I'll be out in the next year or two. You know, it's academic publishing, so so we'll see. Um, but I will say that right now, I'm working on some book reviews for the Nation at the moment. Uh, I'm working on my my first solo book project about, which is a totally different thing, about the relationship between the Democratic Party and and Black Americans in the post-civil rights period. Really looking at how in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, Southern Democrats in particular are trying to articulate different ways to really appeal to Black voters and get the Black voter base mobilized over and over again. And what and how that also plays into divides between the progressive and moderate wings of the Democratic Party during that time period as well. So that manuscript is due uh, early next year. So I'm currently working on that and, and a few other projects as well. So I am I am staying pretty busy, to say the least. Well, you're you're a saint for doing book reviews. That's a total mitzvah because book reviews, for anyone who doesn't know, they 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 come out to about three cents an hour because you have to read the book twice and then you write an article <laughs> for it and someone gives you about two hundred and thirteen dollars. So anyone who does a book review is doing a service to humanity because they, they are saint. usually they are no they're a thankless job. So anyway, I'm glad you're doing that. <laughs> thank oh, you for thank doing you. the thankless job. I, uh, I no, this I've been, never done it. No one's ever asked me to review a book. I don't read. They, they don't want. They know what you'll do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll just paraphrase it. I think chapter seven was good. I don't know. It was okay. <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> Robert, thank you so incredibly much for joining us uh, tonight on Citations Needed for this uh, live stream begathon. Um, for all of you out there, please know we have been speaking uh, with the amazing Dr. Robert Green II, Assistant Professor of History at Claflin University, Publications Chair of the Society of U.S. Intellectual Historians, Senior Editor of Black Perspectives, African American Intellectual History Society, and Co-Editor 
of Invisible No More, The African-American Experience at the University of South Carolina, which came out last year, 2021, uh, from USC Press. Also, of course, as you've heard here, has written extensively about the great world of Star Trek for publications like The Atlantic and none other than Star Trek.com itself. Robert, thank you again so much for joining us on Citations Needed. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the wrestling conversation coming up. Just don't bust yourself open during the actual conversations. Stay safe there. Okay? Ooh, my <laughs> I have, I'm palming a razor right now. It's going to be all crimson mask for the rest of the show. I don't know. I don't know me. what any of this means. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Robert. Soon enough, Adam. Don't worry. <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to right. learn. I'm, I'm here to learn. Let's, let's watch when I, yeah, I'm going to come over to, going to come over to Chicago and hit you with a steel chair. Um, it might happen just so you really understand this. Uh, but no, that was, that was so great. Uh, before yeah. we bring up our next guest and, and switch gears, um, there's actually incredible crossover. I was listening to, um, listening to Robert's answers about, you know, about just, just all of, uh, like the kind of background material, the, the context of these episodes and these seasons, these entire shows. And, um, there are so many parallels. I mean, like just the the context of when when a pop culture you know uh, piece of content comes out, right? Like whether it's the '80s, whether it's the '60s, whether it's the '90s, what's happening? Like there's so much embedded. As I'm you know thinking about wrestling in what it meant to you know be a wrestling fan during like uh, the Reagan era versus the Clinton era versus right. the Bush era, et cetera. Right. Like it's all just within, within context. Uh, so I'm, I'm so excited to get into that. There's talk of, uh, there's talk of animation. There's talk of, uh, you know, Robert was saying he was, uh, he's, he's working on um, a book about the history of uh, black America and the democratic party. Uh, Brandy uh, just wrote a book on that. So before we bring our next uh, our next guest up and and start talking about my uh, beloved topic of professional wrestling, um, we want to be able to also announce uh, that we are um, going to be giving away over the next about half hour, in addition to uh, the tote that is coming up. We'll announce that winner shortly. Um, the uh, we are going to be giving away three copies of Brandy's book. Um, her book is called uh, Black Skinhead Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. So please do uh, over the next uh, 20 minutes or so, 20, 25 minutes or so, keep dropping those comments in the YouTube chat uh, so we can get um, we can get those books to you. Uh, we're giving away, as I said, three she will join us in just one moment adam do you have are, are you apprehensive about a conversation about wrestling what's your take on wrestling you know it's like <laughs> a deep sigh <laughs> no i'm not anti i i'm not anti it's just it's a cultural thing you know i feel like it's it's sort of like any kind of sport you know you grow up with it you know it's like you sort of if you don't grow up with it it's not part of your the texture of your life yeah you know it's like yeah. it, people say oh you know that's what baseball is boring it's like i don't know i've been watching baseball since i was six months old like it's just to me it's yeah, exciting totally. and if you're mm -hmm. not you know and i don't particularly like soccer because i didn't grow up with soccer now objectively i could look at the world cup and be like that's great but i didn't grow up with it so it doesn't have the same kind mm -hmm. of like mm -hmm. you, you can't i think you can learn to like a sport or an entertainment product but i think it's um and obviously wrestling is a hybrid um but I think it's 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 difficult to do. Um, mm -hmm. uh, 
And I wa- and I just never watched wrestling. It was not in my house. It was never part of anything I did. Um, yeah, I, I it, to me, I don't, I know nothing and, about it. And, and I started I, watching before I was five years old. So I mean, yeah. And uh, you know, that that doesn't mean I've watched. Uh, I have not. I've not. You know, been a consistent fan since then. Uh, there was, you know, I don't buy that. No, no, no. It's true. There was a huge period of time. Um, between was this, about was this was this when you were in a rock band? <laughs> partly, uh, partly it was, yeah. uh, but but much 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 earlier than that. Um, from when I was about, mm, you know, from like the mid nineties to 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 really like, I mean, the mid twenty tens. Um, I wasn't watching the new product. I have since learned, okay. you know, like there was a period of time where I just wasn't watching. And then in like the early 2000s, I started revisiting the stuff that I loved, which I had not really right. been, uh, you know, uh, hadn't been consistently watching and 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 refell in love with it and realized like, oh, no, abs- this is like my favorite shit. I absolutely love this shit. And then kind of, um, you know, re reacquainted myself with. Um, with the with the with the really like the the what's known as like the golden age, you know, uh, the 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 stuff that I love, the, the Hogan and uh, Macho Man and uh, Ultimate Warrior years. I mean, although I would never claim anything to be an Ultimate Warrior year. So I'll tell you what sucked. I have seen, uh, but you know, my, my, but, well, my, but 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 well, but 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 then I really went away from it. But I but I came back and then I have learned like kind of the 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 intermediate period that I had missed, right? My my cultural contribution is that I have seen all five of the Marine movies, which I believe are WWE products. <laughs> there was That's three, right. Or is there four or five? If you've seen five. the rundown, you've also there's seen John. There's the John Cena one, and then the other four have the the Miz. Have the Miz in it? Yeah, of course. And they're like legitimately <laughs> good B action movies. Like the well, the, the 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 third or fourth ones are. They're like shot in one location, but it's all wrestlers, so like the fight scenes are good. Yeah. And it's like Die Hard in a Parking Garage. It's like the lowest budget movie you've ever seen. I'm not joking when I say it's Die Hard in a Parking Garage. The yeah, whole movie takes place amazing. in a parking garage. It's pretty but great. it's actually like a pretty decent um, <laughs> a decent B action movie. Though I've seen every bad action movie. That's We are joined by Brandy Collins Dexter, Esquire, Associate Director <laughs> of Research at the, uh, at the Technology and Social Change Project, which is housed at Harvard's Sorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Brandy is also the author of the brand new book, Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. Welcome, Brandy, to Citations Needed. I am so thrilled that you are here with us. Thank you guys for having me on. All right, so let's get to it. Um, I don't know if you uh, heard before. Adam is not a wrestling fan. Didn't grow up watching it. Doesn't doesn't know it. Uh, knows, yeah. I mean, hey, it's wrestling. It's it's all around us. Uh, it's, an, but, it's an acquired uh, taste. Yeah. It's <laughs> well, but let's. I, I want you to. Here's the thing. I, I desperately want you to acquire it. So, Brandon, no, I, just I'm, come out I'm, with, I'm <laughs> coming in with an open mind here. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave this being a wrestling fan. <laughs> Well, we'll see. <laughs> or you're going to be you're going to no, be I'm, like you're no, going to be right, like actually right I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so Brandy, you've just come out with a with 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 a, a 
new book, your first book, Black Skinhead, Reflections on mm-hmm. Blackness in Our Political Future. It is it is fantastic. And there is so much to discuss about it, especially as it uses the personal, political, and pop culture evolution of Kanye West as a framework for discussing the always evolving identity and significance of blackness and the ongoing betrayal of black American uh, communities by the Democratic Party and what that really portends for the future of our small D democratic experiment here in the US. Uh, but before we get there, uh, as advertised, you hear actually to talk about my favorite thing in the whole wide world, professional wrestling. Yes. Uh, I have a billion questions to ask. My ultimate goal, as I've just said, is uh, hopefully to win Adam over to the dark side. Uh, but let's start simple. And by that, I mean uh, maybe the hardest question I could possibly ask you to start, which is why is wrestling just the best, despite oh, being obviously that's a, incredibly problematic? That's a, that's a hardball. Yeah, I mean, well, so like to set the context, I think for me, I grew up a wrestling fan, but like most people at a certain age, you become a grown up and then you feel like you've like aged out of it. So it was like a lot of years of me actually not being in wrestling. And then 2016 happened Mm. and it was just like constant rapid response work. Like everything felt like it was falling apart. Your mind is like preoccupied with all of the ways in which it feels like we're losing a lot of things. And so I was like, I need a hobby. And like, I wasn't good at knitting. I wasn't good at like figure skating, but I'm like really good at fandom apparently. And so like, I think wrestling for me um, was this thing where you're kind of like fed cues about who to root for. Um, you Even if you follow those cues or you don't, you become part of this collective on and offline, this community that's kind of like feeding off of each other. And um, I think for me, part of what I love about wrestling is the diversity around it. So I think a lot of people associate, especially in the US, wrestling with like the WWE for a number of reasons, because it's like, you know, been a monopoly. But um, once you enter into that world, you can see like, I love Japanese women wrestlers. That's actually my obsession. But you've got like Mexican wrestling, you've got and luchadors. Um, but it, it really, you can find a space for you. Indie wrestling with a lot of like feminists. So there's a lot of different spaces for that. And also the fan base is super diverse. It's also one of the leftist, most leftist sports fan bases outside of, I think, the WNBA, NBA, and soccer. So when you go online, into those communities, there's a type of intelligence of the conversations that people are having. So how did how did I do on that, Nima? I think that is Adam. You're sold, right? And I, I mean, <laughs> well, I think, it, it, I think- <laughs> you, you, you sold me on. I, I know that leftists love wrestling, which is what makes me a bit of an outlier. I'm, I but so there, yeah, it, it could you know, it's their fandom sounds good. It's not it's not golf. Um, so <laughs> you know, it's not like the yeah. people who funded January sixth. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Um, no, no, no. I was going to say, I mean, I, I mean, so, so much of it is this, is this, um, you know, uh, the, the, the personalities, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, bring this thing to life are, are everything their their uh, brilliance, whether, you know, in the, in the ring, on the mic, the way they relate uh, to each other, the way they relate to the to, to the to the fans. This is all also happening in a business that largely, I mean, uh, let's you know, maybe setting aside uh, indie promotions uh, a, a little bit. If we're looking at, I mean, you know, my my great love is is the WWF uh, now WWE. Um, knowing full well, I mean, I'm a you know born and raised New Yorker. I had no chance. It's the hometown territory. Uh, you know, that's what was going on. Uh, those shows at the at, at Madison Square Garden, 
Um, you know, and then and then Vince McMahon monopolizes the entire industry. Um, and so it's it's this amazing kind of, you know, I I love I love the stories. I love the people. Um, and yet knowing that this is operating within a system mm-hmm. that is that is so ugly, that is like kind of like some of the deepest ugliness um that that we that we have in in terms of uh, corporate control, no workers' mm-hmm. rights. So, Brandy, how do you how 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 do you square that? Or maybe that's the 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 curse of the wrestling fan is that actually it's not about squaring it. I mean, I think for me, there was there was a period of time in which I was kind of willing to go along with it. It it was weird because I think the moment where I canceled my WWE app at the time was the Saudi Arabia deal. I I was like that was like a bridge <laughs> too far. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think for me, and then they there brought was, out an Iranian wrestler just so he could get his ass kicked by a Saudi. Yeah, wrestler. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, also at that time, like AEW was emerging, which is kind of like the current competitor to the WWE. Um, But I think for me, like, again, um, I just always come back to you have these wrestlers, whether for me, it's like, I follow every black woman wrestler. So like Naomi, like Sasha Banks, like Jade Cargill, but there's like something about the people and the stories and that idea of like David versus Goliath that just like kind of sucks you in. So I think for me, I've kind of been able to justify it more through more my indie wrestling fandom but like even now after Vince McMahon left I was kind of like I've definitely been checking into WWE mm. I can't even lie it's a <laughs> it's a little <laughs> it's a little friendlier it's a little yeah. friendlier now um so you know uh I, I, again I, I want to make sure we uh we, we 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 talk about your book um it is about it is or not a, about let's not so much let's no, no, no 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 but it is about it is about don't worry, I'm getting there. <laughs> it is about it is about so much, and uh, I, I mean, it's literally I have it next to me. Um, uh, you know, it's a story of your, of your family, a, a really loving portrayal of your of your of your father who uh, passed away during the writing of of the book, and who I have to say, I mean, reading reading this book, it, he sounds like truly an absolutely incredible incredible human being. Um, but perhaps more than anything, uh, this book really contains a blistering critique of corporate consolidated media, uh, namely the, the the reductive media framing of black people, black culture, criminal mm-hmm. legal system, and a lot of economic issues that are that, that are intertwined there. So to stick with our theme tonight, there's an entire chapter in Black Skinhead, an entire tap- chapter uh, about wrestling. Mm-hmm. Notably, Dusty Rhodes' famous yes. 1985 Hard Times promo. This is when yes. Dusty Rhodes was in uh, Jim Crockett's Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight Championship territory, which at the time was part of the NWA. Uh, now, for all of you uh, watching, uh, that's the National Wrestling Alliance, the <laughs> not the body not the other NWA. of a group of independent wrestling companies around the country, not the other NWA. Uh, now, Dusty um, was known as the American Dream. His character was like a blue collar everyman. At the time, uh, Dusty was a face. Uh, so in wrestling jargon, that's a good guy. Um, and was feuding with the top heel or bad guy at the time in the company, Ric Flair. Um, another legendary wrestler uh, whose um, persona was really one of like a flamboyant, diamond-clad, Rolex-wearing playboy, right? So we're going to listen to this 1985 Dusty Rhodes promo. It is one of... 
I mean, one of the best things ever, uh, if you love this stuff. And hopefully if you, if, if, if you are learning to love this stuff, as I know Adam is, um, as we speak, we're going to listen, uh, to Dusty, uh, Dusty's hard times promo. Uh, and then I have a question about it. The way I feel about Ric Flair, no respect, no honor. There is no honor among thieves in the first place. He put hard times on Dusty Rhodes and his family. You don't know what hard times are, Daddy. Hard times are when the textile workers around this country are out of work. They got four or five kids and can't pay their wages, can't buy their food. Hard times are when the auto workers are out of work and they tell them go home. And hard times are when a man has worked at a job 30 years. 30 years, they give him a watch, kick him in the butt, and say, hey, a computer took your place, daddy. That's hard time. That's hard time. And Ric Flair, you put hard times on this country by taking Dusty Rhodes out. That's hard time. And we all had hard times together. I admit, I don't look like the athlete of the day supposed to look. My belly's just a little big. My hand is just a little big. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. And there were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other one's right here. Nature Boy Ric Flair. The world's heavyweight title belongs to these people. I'm going to reach out right now. I want you at home to know my hand is touching your hand for this gathering of the biggest body of people in this country, in this universe, all over the world now. Reach it out because the love that was given me and this time I will repay you now because I will be the next world's heavyweight champion on this hard time blues. Dusty Rhodes Tour 85 and Ric Flair, Nature Boy. Let me leave you with this. One way to hurt Ric Flair is to take what he cherishes more than anything in the world. That's the world's heavyweight title. I'm gonna take it, I've been there twice. This time when I take it, Daddy, I'm gonna take it for you. Let's gather for it. Don't let me down now, cause I came back for you, for that man up there that died 10, 12 years ago and never got the opportunity to see a real Wolf champion. And I'm proud of you and thank God I have you. And I love you. Love you! All right, so, Brandy, <laughs> What about this hard times promo beyond Dusty's sweet mic skills hits you so hard that you featured it in your book? Uh, and really, what does it say about Dusty, the dream, and about our collective American dream? Yeah. I mean, well, so first of all, I just think it's really funny that you and I were sitting there watching and we were smiling and Adam's just sort of sitting there like, mm, okay. No, like, I smiled. I was like, I was like with a tear in my uh, eye. I, I, I related to the, to the pop, to the populist rhetoric. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I, I, think, I don't have much context. Yes. That, that yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think for me, well, first of all, I love it when wrestling breaks the fourth wall. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's interesting about it when it, blurs that line between sort of reality and entertainment in these ways like that hit hard. And so I think, you know, there's a couple of things about 
this that resonates with me. So this this um, speech came out in, uh, or this promo was cut in, I believe, October of 85. So we're like in Reagan's America, um, you know, and he just won his like second term. Um, and <clears throat> <clears throat> that 84 election was actually like the largest um, racial gap I believe that we've seen um, an election with white people overwhelmingly voting for Reagan and black people at that time voting at highest numbers than they ever had for Mondale. And we didn't see anything like that actually until the 2012 Obama election. But like, you know, there's this, so there's this moment of this kind of like racial fracturing Reagan's running on this, like, you know, make America great kind of like divisive dog whistle. Um, and you see Dusty in this promo really, I think, playing to a bunch of different audiences in a way that resonates with me. So, like, even he uses the term bad, um, but he talks about it like not bad meaning bad, but bad meaning good. And I think, like, now we kind of know that because it's so regular. Hip-hop culture is so, like, regular in our life. But at that time in, like, 85, hip-hop was very much like a black youth, a black and Latino youth subculture that was not a part of the mainstream. And so when he uses bad in that way, it's like a specific call to certain groups. It's not going to be understood by everybody. And then he takes that and he pairs it with John Wayne, who's like this other particular figure that means something to this set of group of like, you know, white people, working class, like, you know, different groups. And he brings them together in the context of this speech and this idea that there's in us. And it really cuts to the heart, I think, of what divides us and what makes us stronger in a way that doesn't play into the kind of like zero-sum politics that we see for more like right-wing populism. And so that's part, that's like, I don't, I don't remember it because I'm like not that old. Um, but like, it, you know, it was one of those promos that once I discovered it, like just kept going back to it again and again. Is he Cajun? Yeah. Is that what? No, he's, is that? He's, 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 he's from Austin. He's from Texas. Yeah, he's from okay. Austin, I, I, Texas. It sounded like East Texas or, or Louisiana. Yeah, grew up in this neighborhood that was like, I believe, Mexican and black, and so really like kind of comes by it pretty honestly. He's got a Jerry. He's rocking a Jerry curl. He's got like the gold watch. Like I feel yeah, like if, yeah, he he sorry. he could he could come home. Yeah, you, you mentioned <laughs> that in your in your in your defector piece that you wrote. That was an excerpt from your from your book. Um, that he he that you thought that his his I guess shtick what's the appropriate term to use in gimmick wrestling gimmick that it 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 did a lot of signaling or spoke to a kind of African American experience um, and that that was something that that um, made him I guess popular or more popular mm-hmm. than he otherwise would have been because he didn't play to this kind of generic redneck stereotype. Um, can you talk about what you sort of meant by that? I mean, I know you elaborated in the piece, but tell t- tell our listeners what you meant by that. Yeah, I mean, I think. So one of the things he says, I uh, if you ever read his bio, it's actually really quite good. Um, but he talks a lot about um, how he has like a lot of black people that still come up to him. You know, well, he's dead now, but like uh, throughout his life would come up to him and say that these hard times promo and like the other things that he does, especially when he was um, the American dream. There's some other stuff around the common man, which we might get to, but that really resonated with people. And so like he's going out and he's doing natural promos. Like by the time you get to like WWE 90s, 2000s, like there's not a lot that's not scripted. 
um, by that time. And so like, even when something seems like it's like this authentic moment, I don't know what you think about like the CM Punk pipe bomb, but that might be like wrestling to 2.0. So we don't have to talk about that tonight, <laughs> but like, you know, all of it is, is, uh, you know, the people behind the machine, like, know what's going to be said. But in in these in this instance, in these early kind of, like, Dusty Rhodes years, he's, like, riffing in a way. And when he talks about, like, textile workers, a lot of those are, like, women of color in a number of different communities. When he, right. when he talks about, like, particularly his choice of some of the industries that he's talking about, he's, like, speaking to industries that have a lot of, like, people of color that have worked their way to the middle class through those labor vehicles that now we're seeing go away. And even like a year after the hard times promo, um, I think like Reagan and the commerce department sponsored like a conference um, where 120,000, I think American firms came um, and he was encouraging them to like move the factories out of the U S. So this is like marking the, you know, rapid rise of deregulation. So I think some of that resonates the naturalness of the language and I think we'll we'll talk about it later but um yeah he really like people that he spent time around you can tell that he like spent time around you know um black people even on the indie wrestling circuit mm-hmm. yeah I mean I think what's what's kind of remarkable about about the hard times promo is that I I can't imagine it ever happening in the world of the WWF um of 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 what I grew up watching uh more often. Um so I you know I was already I think watching it around the time of the hard times promo but like that's that's a different territory. That was that was not that was not WWF uh which you know mm-hmm. is is Vince McMahon's co- for those who don't know Vince McMahon's company uh later known as uh of course the WWE that that left the NWA in 1983 went on to essentially cannibalize and then monopolize the entire wrestling industry for years and years but uh and eventually Dusty Rhodes came to the WWF um and when he did Vince the owner uh you know, who had been a longtime competitor, right? Dusty was like a top performer in mm-hmm. other territories uh, and stayed away from the WWF for a long time. But when he finally came, Vince really treated him like a clown, dressing him in yellow polka dots, uh, giving him the moniker, the new moniker, no longer the American dream, but now the common man. Uh, and he was further made to humiliate himself by playing essentially an exaggerated caricature of his previous powerful and very successful persona. The switch from the dream to the common man is also telling of Vince's own ideological proclivities, I think. The commoner, right, is like stagnant while the dream is aspirational. Mm-hmm. Uh, the common man knows his, his place while mm-hmm. the dream of wealth and power, uh, you know, is essentially cut off from the common man. It's it's a pipe dream. It's unattainable. Um, it's like Vince wanted to ensure that the light was snuffed out <laughs> and that the dream was kept in his place. Um, and indeed, the America of the WWF uh, is different than that of Dusty's Hard Times promo, right? Uh, at the time, Hulk Hogan was massively popular, uh, but he wasn't a populist, right? He was a different mm-hmm. kind of hero. He was a propagandist, really. Uh, if you listen to his entrance music, uh, you can tell right away, Real American by Rick Derringer, which... I have to I have to note, uh, incidentally, was originally written uh, for and used by the tag team, the U.S. Express, uh, Mike Rotunda and Barry Windham, uh, but later became um, Hulk's theme music and is known, you know, uh, associated with him to this day. Um, you know, but even later populist characters like I would say Stone Cold Steve Austin and to an extent The Rock, right? The people's champ. Um, 
mimicked certain aspects of Rhodes's persona, but never the kind of down and out working working man. It, it was it was it was all it was all of a different of a different type. So, Brandy, what are your thoughts on how like the WWF or the now the WWE sells its own kind of American dream and how that mythology works in terms of like our own fandom and love of it, while also uh, you know what is what 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 it's clearly trying to. Uh, portray as who 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 we are as a society. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to answer that, but I want to go back because, I mean, and, and really double down on some of the freaking, I don't know if you can curse on this, messed up stuff. You can absolutely say, curse okay, on this. Okay, fucked up show. stuff that, like, you know, Vince McMahon and those folks did. So when Dusty Rhodes, like, goes over to the WWE and becomes the common man, like, one of the things that they did was pair him actually with a black woman, Juanita Wright, who was known Sapphire. as Sapphire. Yeah. And like, um, this is kind of like the era of like sensational Sherry, Miss Elizabeth. If you know those folks, they're very like glam, you know, considered glamorous, beautiful women by like sort of white standards of beauty. And Juanita is somebody that she's like a little older. Um, she's more, she's curvy. Like she has a jerry curl as I did at the age of six when I was watching this. Um, but like to Vince McMahon, and if you know anything about like sort of Vince McMahon and his like history of how he approaches women, like he has a type and he has this ideal like woman of glamour. And so it's obvious that when he pairs um, Sapphire with Dusty, that it's an attempt at sort of emasculation and um, and it's an attempt to humiliate her. And But what he didn't realize was that she was super charismatic. She was actually the first Black woman in the state of Missouri to get a license to wrestle. Um, and she gets over. So like in her mm -hmm. year run, she's at like WrestleMania, SummerSlam, Royal Rumble, Survivor Series. And actually through her, they is part of how Dusty Rhodes like makes sort of humanity of this character that they're trying to treat in inhumane ways. And then they fire her, get rid of her in the most humiliating fashion by selling her to the Million Dollar Man. Million Dollar Man. Ted DiBiase. piece of shit. Um, and actually, as we speak right now, is like in trouble in Mississippi because this man has been defrauding the state of Mississippi and the welfare agency, like true story. So terrible person. But there's this storyline of selling her to him. And then also Million Dollar Man has Virgil, who's like a black butler slash shit slave. And Virgil is actually named after Dusty Rhodes. That's so right. there's all this His stuff that's almost like Reynolds. the worst thing you could be like besides a black person is like a white person that like deals with black people is almost like what he's saying there. So I just want to double down on that. But I think to answer your question, um, a lot of what we see is like the use of populist language in a way that suppo supports a lone wolf character. So I think in like Steve Austin, and The Rock and even, you know, CM Punk, like they're not necessarily, they're like individuals, they're rugged individuals that use the language of being, you know, of the people, but are really kind of out for themselves. And mm -hmm. how many times have we seen that with like, you know, Donald Trump, Elon Musk, Kanye West, take your pick. But it's like this idea of like, you're getting the American dream, but it's not necessarily like, creating the conditions for the American dream to be real for everyone. And so I think that's some of the different changes and shifts that we see in the 90s going into the 2000s. 
Shocking for a billionaire owner to push that narrative. Yeah, who would have thought? <laughs> who would have thought? Now, before we continue, this has been so great, Brandy, but I want to make sure that we uh, announce uh, the lucky folks um, who are watching right now um, who are going to get copies of your book, Black Skinhead. Um, so I will announce those winners right now. Drum roll. Uh, the first is Kylie W. The second is Maddie Duke. And the third is Joshua Kantara. So Kylie, Maddie, and Joshua, um, congratulations. Uh, please do hit us up uh, at citationsneededcontact at gmail.com uh, so we can uh, get your info and make sure that you get uh, these books. You uh, will absolutely uh, love it. It is Brandy. I really, uh, truly, it is. It is. It is fantastic. It's a. It's a. It's. It's a great read. Our next giveaway is going to be a citations needed T-shirt. Uh, so please uh, stay in the chat, all of you um, who are watching. Uh, for the next, uh, I'd say 20, 25 minutes, uh, we'll be in the running for a shirt, uh, and we will announce uh, the winner of that by the end of the show uh but brandy let's 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 get back to this adam were you gonna say something can, yeah can i do you mind if i ask you somewhat uh, uh, somewhat ignorant question um, there are no ignorant questions i i I, questions I do i am fascinated by this concept that that when vince mcmahon kind of takes over the whole thing that the because wrestling from what i understand is, is inherently populist in the sense that the reason why characters grow and become successful is because they have legitimate or organic fan appeal, right? Is that how it typically work? And then the scripts then reflect to some extent the 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 the, the masses want this person to beat this person or so forth. Is that generally correct? Is that how it works typically? And you have there's like a, there's a bit there's a bit more nuance there, but but, I, I, but I'm sorry, I know I'm, you, I'm really not trying to no 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 no, no, no. this <laughs> is totally so, totally makes sense. So, uh, so it, I, I there, guess there have been there have been numerous times where say like you know, the Daniel company Bryan. or the bookers want to push someone or want to hold someone back, right? Or right. don't don't think that someone's going to be a star the, the, the or wants to make largely, the new star. The fights but are largely scripted, correct? Well, it's booked, and like there are, you know, like there's story arcs, so they kind of know who's gonna who's gonna do what next. But you right? know who's so gonna it's, win typically? It's, right? Yeah, it's because yeah. it's because it's it's an athletic soap opera, right? So that's no, not. I mean, that's the, not. And I would the, the Chicago Lyric Opera is rigged. I, yeah, I mean, I get it. It's it's <laughs> yeah. yeah. And but since the rise to, to, of kind yeah. of, oh, sorry. I was going to no, no, say, please. since the rise of kind of like online fandom, because a lot of like wrestling fans were kind of like early adopters of the internet, like have this fan base. There's folks like Daniel Bryan or like kind of indie wrestlers that get these pushes that they may not have otherwise gotten okay. were it not right. for the fan base. Because of the fans, right. Yeah. To, to your point. The reason I ask is because I guess I'm fascinated by the idea that that having some tinge of legitimate populist politics and then the rhetoric kind of remaining being stripped out into this sort of, um, again, it's, it is not to over overthink this, but that it is very much like the rhetoric of the Republican Party from the 80s forward, where it's like there's all these affects and, and gesturing towards the working man and, and sort of cultural signifiers. And I got Bush says y'all and, and, you know, I like to have beer and I don't like mm-hmm. fancy mustard. And I, you know, I just go to the drive through with my totally. family like anyone else. But it's all fucking hollow. And to what extent, mm-hmm. like that was stripped out of the, the the wrestling product such that it is something that does come from places that are usually going to be more likely to be working oh. class. I mean, you are, you are absolutely right. I mean, uh, you know, the, 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 what, what that makes me think of is um, a storyline in the late nineties where, where Steve Austin, I mean, at that time, by far the most popular wrestler in WWF um, 
I mean, the pop he would get every single show mm-hmm. when you hear like the smashing glass uh, entrance music. What is uh, truly, truly unbelievable, and especially at the time, kind of coming coming off, uh, you know, uh, sort of like a middle period uh, where you know Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart were were huge. Undertaker was still huge, but then it kind of in in that in that Attitude Era. Um, what Steve Austin was able to do with those crowds was really amazing and played a kind of anti-hero, right? So I think to your point, Adam, uh, there was a storyline where he basically then became uh, the new head of the WWF. Vince was out, Stone Cold is in, and here's Stone Cold, the beer drinking, uh, you know, every man that, 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 that people love. He's like, doesn't take any shit. Um, that's, you know, that's the, that's the bottom line. Uh, Cause Stone Cold said so, like, you know, pushing back on 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 the boss right he hated the boss mm-hmm. then he becomes the boss mm-hmm. there's this right. whole thing where it shows it shows austin in the wwf offices in in connecticut being the boss but what does he do he's not of the people mm-hmm. he is now drinking beer everywhere putting his feet up on stuff telling mm-hmm. you know like like a table full of like female lawyers to go get him beers. He's like, you know, like treating people like shit. And it's like, oh, right. Because for Vince and, and like within the WWF, you, you hate your boss, but you want to be the boss, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to just take down the boss and be, and like create something, something different, something with the people. You just want to be that. And so that I think is like to you, to your point, Adam, like, this kind of gesturing toward populism, but really it just comes down to like, <laughs> you know, cause Stone Cold said so. Um, now, Brandy, uh, you know, Dusty's promo to kind of stay on this, but, but shift a little bit. Dusty's promo on what it meant. I think, you know, as you've been saying to working class wrestling fans of, of all races came at a time of recession, right. In, mm-hmm. in, in Ronald Reagan's America, just mm-hmm. eight years later at the, uh, 1993 SummerSlam, uh, event at uh, the Palace of Auburn Hills outside Detroit, Michigan. Uh, foreign Finnish heel Ludwig Borga, um, one of my favorite wrestlers at the time, whose real name is Tony Holloway, and in real life would later go on to serve in the Finnish Parliament, incidentally, uh, was wrestling against former uh, tag team uh, rocker Marty Jannetty, uh, but building up a feud against the WWF's uh, biggest face at the time, Lex Luger. Uh, in Borga's promo before the uh, match against Janetti at uh, SummerSlam, uh, he's shown amid they they do like a like an on location promo shoot, right? Like a pre recorded shoot that they that they play during the event, and he's shown amid urban decay. He's he's in Detroit with like you know wrecking ball style rubble all over, and delivers a promo directly to the camera. He too talks about the American dream but in a very different way. So uh, I'd like us to watch that clip um, uh, before, we, before we comment on it. I'm gonna show you all exactly where Lex Luger is gonna try to win the World Wrestling Federation Championship right here in the middle of the American dream. Well, keep on dreaming, Lex Luger, because if this is what you stand up for. Is this is what you're proud of. These crumbling buildings, this filth, this pollution. And I bet the Lex Express never stopped here 
on its way to SummerSlam. So Lex Luger, look at this. This building is crumbling like America is crumbling because you American high school dropouts are signing this country away welfare check by welfare check. And you people call this the land of opportunities? Well, I'm gonna take my opportunity to show all you so-called American wrestlers and Marty Janetti tonight at SummerSlam what Ludwig Borger is all about. All right. So, you know, as 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 you've noted, the 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 bottom really fell out for Detroit in 1988, just a few years after Dusty talked about struggling auto workers uh, losing their jobs off into, you know, automation, which we had talked about in terms of uh, a Star Trek episode that uh, we were we were we were discussing earlier, uh, this idea of automation, this idea of um, you know, uh, struggle, working class struggle. Uh, this is only five years later, right? So mm-hmm. in Vince McMahon's WWF, only foreigners, occasionally American heels, uh, but mostly foreigners can speak ill of the U.S., right? But like really never a, never a face. Um, mm-hmm. In your book, you discuss the idea of like us group and other group formations. Um, how do you think this informs like the storytelling dramas of pro wrestling? Yeah. So, I mean, another thing to add on the piece about, you mentioned that Tony was um, uh, in parliament. So he actually was a member of a right-wing populist party um, that fought for preserving the Finnish welfare state and advocated for a wealth tax, which I think is kind of interesting on a lot of different levels. And then you have him in Detroit, which essentially is like similar to, you know, Chicago where I am now or Baltimore where I live, a kind of like dog whistle as a city, which is, you know, essentially code for, you know, black working class people talking about this place is dumb. So, I mean, there's that element of it. But like wrestling is, I mean, it's in in a lot of ways, like an exaggerated form of of sports fandom and its successes in making us as fans feel like we are a part of a collective rallying against those in power or the elites. Um, And the McMahon family within this like sort of constructed reality are the evergreen villains. And so you know a heel turn is coming when a wrestler becomes kind of like a McMahon guy. Um, But there's this kind of like a sleight of hand vilification um, that happens because it's like, the McMahons may occasionally take a suplex, but um, they remain ubiquitous. They're always going to ultimately be there um, in an ownership position. And so then the focus com- comes into focus are like the perceived threats that play into identity politics. And so like when you look at kind of the evolution of different characters from heel to face, you have someone like The Rock, who as a villain was part of the Nation of Domination, which in the 90s was basically like a spoof of the Nation of Islam. So like a black nationalist faction. And when he becomes the face, it's like he comes in and he's like, black doesn't matter. He like embodies this kind of like uh, racially ambiguous, I would say like identity. You see the same thing with Roman Reigns. Like when he's a face, he's got like, Roman Reigns is like a... um, biracial uh, wrestler that's like Samoan and white. And when he's like 
pushed as a face. He's like got the SWAT team gear. He's got like blue eyes, like totally playing into like this idea. Um, and then when he becomes a villain is when he starts stepping out in his tribal gear. And so like when you when you have this like accepted reality that the ultimate villain, the ultimate heel, the McMahons are just going to always be there. Then I think the targeted enemy becomes these people that don't assimilate or ascribe to this like idea of Americanism. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'd be we'd be remiss to not. Do you mind if I ask a question? Please. The sort of obvious to this is that like so much, and, and again, I know you, you talked about it. Um, so so much of Trump and Trumpism emerged from wrestling. Obviously, mm-hmm. right? that's kind of the that's the that's the big elephant in the room here. Um, and the kind of KFAB, the like, obviously, you know, heel plays he does like, he, you know, on, I know on the eve of the 2020 election, he was in Erie, Pennsylvania and he's sitting there in the freezing cold and he says, you know, I, I had this thing wrapped up until COVID came and now I got to come here. I got to be honest. I wasn't coming to Erie, Pennsylvania. It's, it's so cold. I, you know, and he's sitting there, he's doing this heel shtick where he's mocking his, his supporters and they eat it up. They're in, they're in freezing mm-hmm. temperatures. He, he's telling them how, what a, what a dump their city is. And so much of that, and then people would see that and they'd be like, oh, Trump's insulting Erie. And it's like, it's a bit like, you know, the guy's obviously a fascist prick, but like he's doing a bit like it. Mm-hmm. Again, a lot of his bits become not bits very quickly. So you have to be careful. But but he's very much speaking in that kind of um, that constructed reality, as you said. Can you talk about and then, of course, McMahon's wife becomes the head yes. of the Small Business Administration yeah. administration. I think it's administration. Yeah. The SBA. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about how the sort of McMahon dominance over wrestling vomited out and it's obviously also had a show on NBC, but in many ways kind of vomited out Trump on us? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a couple. I know Nima has, I'm sure, so much to say about this. I think there's a couple levels to this. So Vince McMahon and Trump are our friends, have been for many years. And in the same ways that Trump became kind of ubiquitous as kind of like in some ways, the most name-dropped white man in hip-hop music. Through wrestling and different, like, um, pay-per-views, he becomes this, like, figure um, that's able to, like, project this idea. But the the thing that I always find funny about it is that I feel like almost like like Vince McMahon is who Donald Trump wants to be or who Mm -hmm. he kind of, like, pretends to be. And so, like, Vince McMahon, his father did own a wrestling company, so he was in the family business. But in terms of how he, like, built it out and developed it, he is in some ways, like, a a self-made man or at least took it to the next level and, um, you know, built all of this out. And then you have Trump, who was, like, you know, a millionaire by the age of 10 or, you know, get it playing in daddy's money, but, like, wants to, like, project this idea that he's, like, a self-made man that pulled himself up by the mythical bootstraps. And so I think you see a lot in Donald Trump's, like, career and trajectory, in my opinion, a lot of, like, almost, like, I don't know if emulating is the right word, but, like, trying to present himself as, like, a McMahon-like figure. And I'm curious what you think about it. No, I think that's, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I've, I've, I've said on this, uh, when I, w- when I've been able to, uh, inject a little wrestling into, into other <laughs> episodes, uh, you know, I've mentioned, uh yeah my thought that again i don't think it's a necessarily original thought but uh you know in a way their relationship is symbiotic like Mm. trump wants to be vince and Mm -hmm. vince wants to be trump like Mm -hmm. they like they 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 love what they see in each other and they're kind of just different versions of each other they know that they're the heel 
in their story, but they love it. They revel in it. Um, obviously, heels are more fun to play. We all we all know that heel heel turns are the best possible thing. Um, in in wrestling, they are they are so fun to watch. Um, you know, and Trump was was intimately intertwined with um, with uh, you know major major wrestling events, WrestleMania mm-hmm. four and five, like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, like he you know he has been around before he became like an in ring performer. He was just like. You know, one of the one of the celebrities in the crowd, or you know, you know, big mm-hmm. shows build at being, you know, being at Trump Plaza, whether they took place there or not. Uh, oftentimes they did not, but they were, you know, in, in Atlantic City and you know had the Trump name splashed all over them. Um, so you know, I think these kind of um, uh, Vince and uh, Vince and Trump kind of uh, have this like uber yuppiness of mm-hmm. like their eighties. Um, lifestyles of the rich like, and famous. Yeah, I mean, like that yeah. is who who they are and who they wanted to be. And I, you know, uh, growing up in New York during the during that time, also, you know, the like Trump was, I mean, loved and already despised. I mean, I mean, even even before even before Central Park Five stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, y- you knew this guy was a piece of shit, and yet his face was all over, you know, magazine and and, and newspaper covers. What is you know what a Donald and uh, Ivana up to like just the weird celebrity dumb. And then with the, with the mainstream kind of mainstreamization mainstreaming of, uh, of, of, of pro wrestling really in 1984, 85 with the rock and wrestling connection, when you had Cindy Lauper and Wendy Richter, uh, Captain Lou Albano really bring, uh, you know, along with obviously Hulk Hogan and Rowdy Roddy Piper, like bring wrestling to the mainstream, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Leading up to WrestleMania one, that Vince and Linda McMahon bet the you know bet the farm on or whatever, um, and they wind up uh, you know starting this this ascent to monopolize the entire business. But um, this idea that you know uh, Vince and 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 Trump, I think, are have this relationship. Also, oh, I should I should mention that. Um, until really like, I don't know, until maybe like the Montreal screw job in 1997, mm-hmm. Vince was not hailed as the owner of the company. Right. Like, so that's like, Vince, Do you want to explain that to the class? What's the Montreal? So like, oh my God. Well, <laughs> so this I, is like a so whole... I don't want to get, sorry, do, no, Andrew, <laughs> I don't want to become too, too much of a, a postmodern professor here, but I, the thing about Trump that so <laughs> that was so dangerous though, is that he would go from this constructed reality where he was doing a bit. To like mm-hmm. either winking and nodding to people who did not think it was a bit, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you had, you know, his whole thing was he was like this sort of lovable, eccentric billionaire. He had the show in The Apprentice. And meanwhile, he's tweeting about, you know, racist bile at, at Obama talking about how the Baltimore riots of 2015 are his, you know, his responsibility. I did a, one of my first articles I wrote when I was a lowly staff writer at Alternate was I listed 10 examples of like, Trump racism. And, and you know, obviously you had the, the full page ad in 1989 for the, for the Exonerated Five in Central Park. Yeah. And like he was so good at doing this, this like wink and a nod, and it's a bit to like, no, I'm actually talking to, I'm obviously <laughs> right. pandering to, mm-hmm. to like actual fascists, and like if you were, if you were too scoldy about it, you were a square, and if you were like not scoldy enough about it, you were you were obviously missing the obvious fact that he was demagoguing and inciting violence against vulnerable populations, yeah. and he was very good at playing that kind of that, uh, I think kayfabe is the re- way you pronounce it, right? I mispronounced it I think, mm-hmm. earlier. Um, so maybe we, can we talk a little bit about that? Like, again, I know it's a little bit Pomo, but like how, how you go from that 
shtick to like, oh, no, he's actually calling Mexicans rapists. And this is bad, objectively. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different levels to that. So, I mean, I think one thing about it, too, is like, I think people say today, well, everybody knew you guys didn't know about the, you know, stuff that he did with the takeout ad um, around the like, um, you know, Central Park uh, rape case. But it's like, you know, this is like pre like everybody on the Internet. Like, I, I think that was actually not something that was as wide spread in the culture as people kind of do say now in the revisionist history version of it. At least that's what I see or understand. But like what is happening at this time is like Nima said, he's appearing in hip hop videos and he's being like sort of marketed as this like self-made man capitalist that you aspire to be. He's in like lifestyles of the rich and famous. Like even when he does, um, uh, what's that, the show you were just talking about where he was, like, firing people? Like, the Apprentice. The, the Apprentice. Apprentice. Like, yeah. his music is, like, the Isley Brothers, which, again, is, like, this type of, like, for, you know, black right. people of certain age or certain groups feels, like, appealing. And there's something about, you know, this is something that I looked into in um, Black Skinhead because I interviewed, like, a bunch of Black MAGA supporters, and I was trying mm. to figure out, particularly for younger um, black MAGA supporters, what was it that was like a draw about him? And it and and for them, it was like, first of all, this like sort of myth of the fact that he was a successful businessman, which again harkens back to like, you know, how he wants to be Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon is a successful businessman. Like Trump is a failed businessman many times over, but people think that he is because he got this like reality show revamp. But it's like this idea that he's like telling it like it is and he's yes. like unapologetic about it and so like that's a that's also the line that you have to watch with wrestling because i think as wrestling fans we think we're like really smart and savvy and we're in on the joke and we're doing the wink too and then it's like you realize that maybe you are the joke and you look up and they've never had like an authentic you know black you know world wrestling champion or like all of these different things about it yeah, I think that <laughs> I I have I if 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 I've learned nothing else is that is that I I am I'm I'm a I'm just a really good mark. Um I <laughs> I'm like I'm never I'm never going to be fully in on it because I just I think I love it too much. So, you know, I of course, I could I could talk wrestling all night. Uh but I do want to shift as I think there's been a really good transition here. Um uh, to discuss uh I'm sorry to say uh Kanye West or Yay, right? So in recent years uh, and this is a major feature of your book. In recent years, Kanye has made kind of the ultimate heel turn from heroic uh, George Bush doesn't care about black people, truth teller to whatever the fuck is going on right now. Um, Brandy, I feel like everyone is reaching out to you about this right now. And so uh, in 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 whatever way you want to discuss, uh, can you talk about how you understand and analyze Kanye's evolution? Yeah. And how you discuss him in your book and whether actually just your PR team uh, for your book has planted all the recent Candace Owens and parlor stuff, the White Lives Matter t-shirt um, and uh, all the tweets no. of these just to sell more copies of your awesome book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting timing. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's kind of crazy um, or I shouldn't use the term crazy. It's very odd to me to have some all of this stuff coming to a head and, and in some ways feeling both validated and horrified by like 
um, some of the stuff in the book. But, and also not for nothing, Kanye, big wrestling fan. So I think there's a lot of like overlap there as well. Um, but so when I talk about black skinheads, I'm talking about these people, a group of people that feel kind of socially and politically alienated and left out of mainstream discourse. And essentially like the thing that I'm trying to get at is like, what happens when you lose space or place? Like what happens when you lose a sense of obligation to community politics, a sense of kind of like linked fate? What happens when you're really good, in other words, at the populist talking points, but you're the lone wolf that just wants to be the boss and drink beer. You don't necessarily want to like create better working conditions. And so I think with Kanye, he's like somebody that I think is really good at taking like kind of personal grievances and framing them through this idea that he's like working on behalf of everybody. But what you see time and time again is that Kanye is working for Kanye. Like even take this moment where he's talking about these kind of tenets of Black conservatism and like all of this stuff. We have a record number of Black Republicans running for office. Um, You know, some like Herschel Walker are complete buffoons. Some of them are at least attempting to talk about a uh, pro-Black agenda through the language of conservatism, he could be stomping with those people. He could be, like, doing a lot of work to try to get those people in a place to make systemic change. But he's not. He's doing fashion shows with a conspiracy peddler, you know, you know, spouting anti-Semitism and wearing a White Lives Matter show. And, and probably because, by the way, he probably thinks, I think Pete Davidson came out recently talking about how he discovered he's Jewish. So, like, don't tell me that he's not just pissed off about that. Like, again, it's like Kanye speaking for Kanye. And so how I see him and how I talk about him in the context of the book is he's almost what I would call, like, a late-stage Black skinhead. So it's like what happens when you, you know, hit the point of no return and you've lost community or any pretense of community and you're just going, like, scorched earth. Um And, like, how do you find your way back from that? I think that's, to me, like, how I think about him within the book and how I place him in this context of, you know, Black political expression and disillusionment. Yeah, I mean, because you, you you know, you you note, I guess, uh, specifically, you know, interviews with, say, TMZ, right? Like an infamous interview with TMZ, but then also, like, a follow-up on, I believe, uh, Breakfast Club, right? And so, Mm -hmm. uh, which kind of gets to... um, to I, I I think what can be our our final question. We've definitely kept you, and this has been amazing. I could go all night, but um, uh, Adam's like, you know, no, we need to this, we need to wrap it this, up. B. <laughs> wrap it up, people. <laughs> like, but this being a podcast about the media, after all, uh, you know, I, I really do want to touch on your critique of corporate media um, and and the Democratic Party and how both routinely deploy and exploit deeply reductionist framing of Black people and Blackness mm-hmm. itself. And you discuss this throughout throughout the book. Um, how does this kind of fit in with, you know, the ways that information or certainly disinformation, deliberate campaigns of disinformation uh, move through black communities and and due to this, what is currently at risk in our national politics? Yeah. So I would say for me, this at its core is a media justice book. That's like the field that I come from. That's where I was like really introduced to my politic through like you know, media justice um, through folks like Joe Torres at Free Press who wrote News for All the People, 
my podcast partner and uh, uh, president or ED of Media Justice Now, Stephen Renderos, um, Renderos, Malkia Cyril, who was like, you know, one of the co-founders of Media Justice. So like to me, I think what it comes down to is like when we are not able to tell our own stories, plead our own cause and, um, you know, advocate on our behalf, then our liberation is left in someone else's hands, um, many of whom do not have our interest at heart. And so to tie it back to wrestling, it's like the McMahons can convince you that sometimes the little guy wins, but at the end of the day, they're still the ones calling the shots. They're still the ones that decide who's in the matches, and they're still the ones that determine how you see the characters that you root for or root against. And so when you're playing on someone else's field, and I, I would apply like both a race <clears throat> and class analysis to that, um, whether you're talking about media, whether you're talking about, you know, a democratic party that is not always speaking to working class interest, especially since, you know, Citizens United and, you know, influx of dark money in politics. Um, what you have are like a bunch of people that are kind of like speaking for our interests, but like maybe not representing our interests or actually like moving policy or creating media conditions that allow um, or help us have like autonomy or independent ownership. And so like I talk about this in the context of Black people. One, because, you know, I am Black, the personal is um, political to me. Also, because Black people have been such a cohesive base, I think it's a place where you can see that if it's happening to us, it can happen to any group. But I think we all lose when we have, you know, between 2008 and the 2020 COVID recession, the mass loss of infrastructure and media Black people lost up to 60% of our wealth in the 08 crisis. That was like a lot of tied up in a lot of land, um, a lot of loss of media. And now you have like Sinclair, you know, entering into people's like room, you know, uh, entering into families' homes in the evening and telling you what to think about your community while they're in this headquarters in Baltimore. Or you have, you know, Comcast, um, Leon, Yen, and Aaron. Um, from the markup just released this amazing study looking at, you know, broadband and the inequities of it and how we yeah. pay the same amount. But like, you don't get the, you know, equal amount of broadband if you're in, you know, certain communities or whether you talk about big tech, you know, creating the landscape that's leading to like global fascism and examples of genocide. Like, you know, when we don't have those independent structures and power, we cannot <clears throat> achieve the goal of equity, none of us. And so that's, that's a lot of what I think about, <laughs> you know, corporate media and the Democratic Party. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> well, that was excellent. Yeah, Adam, go for it. Well, no, that was great. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you for, for sticking around late. I, I know we kept you much later than we said we were, and I, I, I'm very, very grateful for that. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, this has been so amazing. Uh, of course, we've been speaking with Brandy Collins-Dexter, Associate Director of Research at the Technology and Social Change Project housed at Harvard Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy. Brandy is the author, as we've been saying, of the brand new book, Black Skinhead, Reflections on Blackness and Our Political Future. And I was remiss uh, to say this uh, earlier, of course, the co-host of the amazing podcast, Bring Receipts. With Steven Renderos, everyone go check out Bring Receipts. Uh, it is it is 
a delight. Uh, it is often a pop culture battle between Brandy and Steven uh, with an amazing guest judge. Um, have they asked me to be a judge? No. They've not. You're busy. You a have judge. a lot of jobs. You can't ask. Yeah. It's so, it's so, <laughs> that is so declasse. I, I give Steven shit about this all the time. Uh, it is it is dope. Everyone check out Bring Receipts. Uh, it's a it's a super, super fun pop culture good time uh, with two amazing folks. Uh, but Brandy, uh, thank you so much, really, for joining us tonight on Citations Needed. Thank you. Raise a lot of money. Good luck. Stay independent. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. <laughs> Here is where we are at. Uh, we are reaching the end of this citations needed begathon. Um, I think it has been lovely. I want to go. I want to go watch some Star Trek. I don't know if this has made you want to watch wrestling. Um, it has. It's just it's overwhelming. I wouldn't know where to start. Like where where oh where, you know where you just oh that's okay. You just start with uh, you know uh, you just start in like late 1984 and watch everything. So I just go on YouTube and. <laughs> I'll give you a, I'm going to give you a syllabus. Here's the, the Wait, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, it's like when I got so, into uh, opera, I just start somewhere <laughs> and then it was overwhelming. So uh, yeah, this has been, this has been lovely. Just as a, a quick reminder, uh, we're going to do more giveaways uh, throughout the next week for our Patreon subscribers. That includes folks who have signed up tonight. Please do sign up uh, if you can, if you are able, uh, you know, it's important to us that we keep, um, that we keep all all of our all of our regular episodes, um, you know, free and open. That will not change. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, but it is important to us that we are able to continue to uh, to 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 do this show, and uh, you all make that possible. So, as Brandy said, stay independent. Uh, we need to stay independent, and you help us do that. Uh, so, we are going to be giving out uh, more prizes, more more uh, citations, merch uh, to subscribers, new and old. Uh, uh, we're going to be giving out, uh, three books, uh, three of Brandy's books to each one of our, uh, Patreon tiers. Uh, that's the cynic level, the skeptic level, and the critic level. Uh, three folks from each of those tiers are going to get, are going to get a book. And because we are celebrating our sixth season, uh, we're doing a whole, uh, you know, clever little, uh, numerical, numerical thing there. So we're going to give think, away I six books. I think Samarian. Yeah. I think that, that the, the Samarians were six, weren't they? Wasn't that? There you go. Oh, right, there you go. Yeah. So like we're giving away. That's why the clock is six mugs. Oh, hmm. see citations. Um, I think so. <laughs> hope, hope you're a Samarian expert. <laughs> right, <laughs> right in the chat if that's correct. If 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 you're Samarian, let us know. I, I believe uh, six, I believe that's six mugs goes. for six mugs for cynic level supporters. Uh, six tote bags uh, for our skeptic level supporters, and six T-shirts uh, for our critic level supporters. We're also going to uh, for one uh, lucky new critic level supporter. Uh, is gonna get a sweatshirt, and for one um, incredibly gracious um, current critic level supporter, uh, someone who's who who has been with us already, uh, you will be in the random lottery um, to uh, to get a sweatshirt as well. Adam, uh, what are your uh, what are your closing thoughts? Uh, it was great. You know, it, it was really curious. We didn't plan it this way, but I, I noticed. You know, as we try to do in the show, I noticed there were there were reoccurring themes in both those kind of pulp cultural enterprises. And I think what, if anything, I learned from today's uh, two parter interview is how uh, what a what an ideological wasteland the '80s and '90s were that we we needed we needed these little morsels of like 
you know, left wing ideology. Um, and I, I don't want to be too hard. And I know there were other things going on. And, and obviously today has its own problems. But it does make you realize that you're like, oh, well, yeah, like this was, you know, because of the because, I, again, I'm not romantic about the democratic nature of social media, but you do see how like to even have those dialogues, if 1994, if I wanted to like meaningly criticize NAFTA, you know, again, you can print all the socialist newspapers you want and sit on the corner or, but it's not really going to mean much. Yeah. Um, uh, and seeing that there was, there was little efforts here by a bunch of, you know, closeted right. lefties in Hollywood or in this, that to kind of push back. <laughs> but I mean, it, has that's just how it, it, it has to be at such a kind of professionalized level to break yeah. through, right? And, and then, that's, and then, and that's always and then you're kind like, of oh been, my God, look at this. Look at this one episode. And that's always of, kind of been Star Trek's thing, right? Like Star Trek's things are always supposed to be on like the cutting edge of, um, I think recently they've lost a little bit of that, you know, with their kind of unironic praise of Elon Musk and stuff that rubbed a lot of fans the wrong <laughs> yeah. way. But but um, but then that also became something later. But anyway, okay. uh, I think what I think what I've learned is that 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 there's that even within the most um, with with pop culture, there is always this, there is these little morsels of kind of ideological um, contest contesting and combat. Um, even in something like wrestling, which, again, I think most people wouldn't consider it. And, and obviously we, we could do a whole, you know. We 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 talked about doing it, and maybe we one day do like a full complete episode on on wrestling's politics because it is interesting, um, and it is interesting that it again it was so instrumental to the rise of Trump. So it's it's yeah it's obviously consequential. It's not you know no all a, of these it's kind a bit, of but it's also work not together. A bit. It's a, exactly, right. exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, well, we will, uh, we, we are going to close out this live stream. Thank you everyone for, uh, sticking with us, um, for these past two hours, uh, and for these past five plus years. Um, it has been amazing. Uh, we will, uh, continue to, um, you know, uh, pump out that, that, that sweet, sweet citations content, uh, that you all like to, uh, like to hear, uh, we think, we hope. Uh, and so, uh, thank you all. Of course, uh, this has been, this has been really super fun. Stay tuned for new episodes of Citations Needed coming at you. In the meantime, of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at Citations Pod, Facebook Citations Needed, and please really do, if you can, become a supporter of the show through patreon.com slash Citations Needed podcast. All your help through Patreon is so incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener funded that will do it thank you everyone for listening to this citations needed begathon and for sticking with the show for all this time our senior producer is florence borough adams our producer is julianne tweeton production assistant is trenda lightburn newsletter is by marco cardolano transcriptions are by morgan mccasson the music is by granddaddy i am nima shirazi i'm adam johnson thanks again for listening everyone we'll catch you next time <laughs>